it's so fun having robots teach themselves. Uh, reinforcement learning for robotics is useful in a similar way that machine learning for computer vision is useful. So, for example, would you rather handcraft features that are able to detect a cat or a dog or a fire truck? But you could have machine learning teach itself a representation of what those things look like. And so, similarly, is true. It is true for reinforcement learning. Uh, would you rather manually hard hard implement like inverse kinematics for motion planning, or just throw reinforcement learning at the problem and have it learn on its own? Hi, and welcome to the Toronto Tech Podcast. Today, I'm joined by cancer researcher and robotics enthusiast Daniel Snyder. Dan loves solving problems by leveraging existing work and making things reusable. Recently. Dan worked on a team that assembled an autonomous robot in less than eight months. We discuss these topics and many others inside episode five of the Toronto Tech Podcast. Hey Dan, thanks for joining me today. Oh hey Sergio, thanks for having me onto your podcast. It seems like a great project that you are starting. <laughs> I'm so I'm so enrolled in what you just said. <laughs> no, but seriously, like um, podcasts are such a wonderful format where you can actually tell long stories and get into someone's head and really feel what they feel. That's the goal. Get into somebody's world and really understand what's going on for them. Yeah, that's what Google is doing too. Yeah, Google, Google's trying to understand you more and more. They probably know you better than you know yourself, or they will. I'm a little scared, but I think you're right. How come I can ask Google who I am? But I can't ask real people. Oh, what does Google <laughs> say that you are? Google Google doesn't. I don't know. Okay. As a, as a bonus at the end, I will tell you who you are in my eyes, if that will yeah. be meaningful to you. Why don't we start by talking about, you did two talks recently at PyCon and Toronto Machine Learning Summit. Tell us about that. Wow. Yeah, it was a busy month. So the first one I talked at um, Python Canada, which is one of the largest community-run developer uh, conferences in Canada. Yeah, so I spoke about how open source platforms um, benefit so greatly when they're set up in a consistent, standardized way. Like, every time you use NPM or PyPy, it's like a really good experience where you can do one command and you all of a sudden you have like hours and hours of effort that someone put into their work. And you can import it in a standard, consistent fashion and like leverage their work. And you can build on top of that even more. Like I talked about three different kind of industries in my talk, robotics, cloud computing, and um, cancer research. <clears throat> and that there are open source platforms to help people collaborate in each of those industries. And the most excellent example is in robotics with uh, the framework called Robot Operating System. It's not an operating system. It's a, a framework, and people have created hundreds, thousands of packages that in, are interoperable um, to do all sorts of robotics things. So um, to connect an Xbox controller or a PlayStation controller or a Logitech um, joystick or motors or cameras. And the amazing thing about it is that like all of academia and industry have standardized on using this framework for robots and so no matter if you're at bmw um, bosch ge um, u of t university of waterloo um, baidu 
Um, so all of these different groups, if they want to do something with robotics, they don't have to think about like, is this camera supported? Is this driver supported? They just kind of, their support, as long as you standardize on rods. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the makers of a, of a camera will also publish the software that allows you to integrate the camera feed into the ROS network. And in the ROS network, you can pick up someone else's software that will take in a couple camera streams and build like a three-dimensional map of the world. And then you can use someone else's software that will take a three-dimensional map and a goal and be able to compute uh, a path that you should follow and output motor commands. And then you can pick up another person's software that will take motor commands and convert them to voltages for motors. Um, so I, built, I got the chance to build a robot at Ryerson University. And in under eight months, we were able, it was basically me and uh, a 13-year-old who I met at Hack Lab Toronto, uh, Matthew Mervish. Uh, he's an, a talented, talented programmer, really, really. Uh, um, he's 13? Yeah, yeah. Um, so we, we put together a, a robot in less than eight months, and it was able to drive autonomously and like navigate around obstacles, like basic obstacles. Um, it had an arm and it could be controlled with a joystick and it, we couldn't have been done. Definitely not possible without building on top of the shoulders of giants, like by using robot operating system. Um, because when you try one tool in the framework, every other tool after that works the same way and you can fit them together using standardized inputs and outputs. And so they all integrate in this super easy, consistent manner, um, it's a lot of fun. I, rec I recommend anyone to get into robotics and, and to try ROS if they're going to do it. Skip right to ROS. Like, it might be hard mode at first, but you'll be able to do so much. It'll be, like, it'll really put you on the cutting edge. Wow. Immediately. It sounds, the way you're describing it, it sounds to me almost like, like Lego blocks. So much like Lego blocks. Yeah, and actually, I think that's why it, it, it resonates with me so much. Like, if you look back to what you were into as a kid and what you're into now, there's there's always like a hint of of your childhood and what you do now. And for me, it, that was Lego. I would play making usually like planes, like space planes with lots of guns. And um, but now I that just, how does that relate directly to the robot that you built? <laughs> the space planes? Well, let's see. This robot has uh, a number of different ways to interact with the world. Maybe not shoot things, but but like shoot sensors like but if it was able to shoot things it would know in 3d space where those things are that it was going to shoot yeah like this is this is way better than lego uh there's no better building than with like the best software tools that you didn't have to write that you can just put together into new implementation and just be amazed at what was possible yeah i really get it you don't have to invent, reinvent the wheel that's what it's about exactly let me let me get more into that <clears throat> sure if you'd like to so tell me Tell me specifically, is this something you gave a presentation about? Yeah, so this was part of the what I talked about. But like what what people sometimes it gl they gloss over is how important standardization is. Like it enables frictionless collaboration. And like collaboration is how we we build things. Like pretty sure uh Adam Smith said teamwork makes the dream work. Well, mm. actually he said division of labor and specialization allows for highly productive systems that's what we're after highly productive systems and so through collaboration and each person being able to contribute what they're good at like 
you're good at one thing and then I'm good at another thing. And then we'll exchange and we're really both much better off. And I think this is, this is so true. And I think Adam Smith's ideas about capitalism will only last as long as scarcity does because they're linked, they go hand in hand. But his ideas about the division of labor will just live on because Mm -hmm. this ability to collaborate just has such an important part of being productive, being highly effective and building cool new stuff. Do you, do you think scarcity is, is going to be something that we're going to solve? I think we are solving it step by step. A lot of things that you don't realize we actually have abundance in. Like we have till grade 12 education abundance. It doesn't cost you anything. You can get pretty much as much as, of it as you want. And even now, beyond grade 12, we have massive open online courses, like from Coursera and from Udemy. We have clothing abundance. You can buy cheap clothes. Uh, You can go get used clothes if you're in need. We almost have food abundance. Like, if you actually shop only at the grocery store, you can buy quite a lot for what what you have. What kind of abundance do you think the internet has has afforded us? Oh, access to information abundance. Like, yeah, it's that's a, a really profound one that's really blown up just very recently. Um, I think it's interesting, the, the accelerating pace of technology. And I think the, the most significant effects have been because of the Internet. And that's why I got into information technology is because I wanted to share this amazing thing with more and more people. It's just connecting at a faster speed, getting more sharing going on. And we're going through this explosion right now. I would argue, though, that the fastest rate of technological advancement that we ever went through as a, as a society was between like 1900 and 1950. And how, how a little bit beyond that, too. I think that was really an incredible time to live through. And I would, I would definitely love to live through that time as an inventor. But the, the pace of that as everybody has been measuring the pace of innovation as new inventions and new ideas, that time seemed like it was not as quick as it is today. So what makes I, you say I would disagree. I think that many parts of our digital life are transforming at an, at an amazing and, and alarming rate currently, but many parts of our physical world advanced at a f- much faster rate during that time period, during the first 50 years of the 20th century. So things that changed were you went from horses to cars. You went from um, sending letters on horses to sending them in airplanes. You could send uh, a telephone message across the Atlantic Ocean. You could have television. Um, mass production and, and automation really um, sort of start at that point. And with the introduction of scientific management, like everything, like people finally got production to down to a science. Right. Those were all brand new ideas at the time. Mm-hmm. The whole idea of an assembly line didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And like how to how to optimize everyone's time as much as possible. They had these things called time and motion studies. And one of my uncles would once said that he was working in a factory like way back. And a business consultant came in, a management consultant. And his task was to analyze everyone's physical labor on in the factory in what's called a time and motion study. So it means writing down the exact steps that every worker performs and identifying where they that where steps can be eliminated. And so this 
is very detrimental to the workers because their work is not long, no longer going to be needed in as large quantities. Right. That was somebody's job. And that's something we talk about quite often today. But that, that idea really came around back then. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And the other amazing thing that I love to think about is just like machined parts and like very high precision engineering and how that enabled things like airplanes and very advanced military technology that led to a lot of what we have in our laptops and in our homes. That's right. I always forget that for a very long period in history, the military is where a lot of innovation came from and divisions of the military. They were the people who were doing research and were trying new things. And eventually that would trickle down to society. Things like, I, I, don't, I can't remember off the top of my head which inventions directly came from military, but I believe one of them was machined, like CNC machines that were computer controlled instead of human controlled. So like if you needed to make a gear, a cog, and you wanted to, and it was a very odd cog, and it had to be these very precise dimensions because it was mm-hmm. going into a jet engine. Yeah, Doing that by hand and getting it exactly right is nearly infeasible. Mm-hmm. But telling a computer, you know, exactly the steps to reproduce that cog, then you can produce a million of them. Yeah, that, the, the history behind that is actually very fascinating. There was competing technologies during the introduction of automation of machine tools. And there was, on the one hand, numerical control, which is what won the intellectual battle. And we have currently G-code, which is the kind of code that you write to control CNC machines or mills, um, any numerically controlled machine. But the alternative to that would have been record and playback, which they were experimenting with, where you'd have a worker perform the action. It would be recorded and played back by the machine and through and automated. Right, so as long as you had a human that could produce the the instructions perfectly then you could repeat it mm-hmm. but if that was not possible or very impractical mm-hmm. yeah definitely the the first one is what we have lots of today mm-hmm. so the mathematical minded people of the day would have preferred numerical control because they uh, would have had the liter- the mathematical literacy to program the functions and the, the curve following like splines that are required for these sorts of things but the workers would have definitely preferred record playback because it still keeps them in the loop. That's right. And uh, there's some more error proneness to it. So mm-hmm. it could potentially take a human 10 tries to get it right, to get it perfect. Yeah, but programmers get things wrong 10 times before they get it. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> right, too. So a lot of what we have we can thank um, for today is because of standardization. Like my favorite standards... Um, personally, are international shipping, the metric system, and TCPIP. Were those all military-related projects? Oh, that's a good question. I think TCPIP was. TCPIP definitely was. Yeah. It's so fascinating how history has shaped the world that we live in today. And one of the things we just talked about was military doing that. So fascinating. But things that we don't even consciously think about, like Britain, how they invested in railway technologies early on. And they were kind of like the masters of railway. Oh, wow, yeah. And they disseminated that information to different places around the world that didn't take it in the same way. That's right, actually. It's interesting the different approaches that Japan and India took to adopting railway technology. So in Japan, they um, brought in the British engineers and they had them train Japanese engineers on how uh, railroads and railway systems are built and then they actually kicked all the British out um, at a certain point. 
And in India, on the other hand, the British had um, come in and built the railway themselves. They used the local labor. They had like 20 or 200,000 laborers working for them, but only like 50 or 500 uh, British engineers. And the, the skill transfer never took place. And as a result, the Indian Railway basically stagnated as a way to bring goods to the, to the ports so that they could be brought back to England. While in uh-huh. Japan, they were able to build it for themselves, by, them, like by themselves and for themselves. And, yeah. and they got really good at it. Yeah, and for, I think, almost 30 years, Japan led the world in high-speed rail, in total kilometers of high-speed rail. Yeah, Um, up until just recently with China. China, yeah. (laughs) They exploded, and and I think they've got more than the rest of the world combined by a factor of two or three. For sure, yeah. I'll I'll link to that graph in the show notes, because that graph is insane. Yeah. Yeah, there's actually one more thing about, you had mentioned that military technology plays a role on the world, but actually the, a counterexample is that after World War II in Japan, they were banned from producing military technologies. And this is actually a, a good reason why they uh, built such good consumer electronics and were the must-have makers of, like, of Sony's products. Um, it's because the best engineers of the time weren't working on military projects, um, but because they couldn't, but they were working on like consumer electronics. Right. They moved to the consumer world, and then that's why Japanese products were what you know the top of the world mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating because again, that's a different approach that not everybody, not every country took after after their military disbanded or whatever it was. That's right. Yeah. I want to add to my vision of what good, consistent software looks like. So first of all, you need to start with an open source platform where you can have many, many people contribute without permission. And that way you have this organic growing capacities that just are ever growing. The four things that you need to have are um, consistency and standardization in terms of the installation approach. So you should be able to have a package manager that just, with one command or one click, installs the new tool to your platform, to your tool set. Secondly, you have to have like a documentation framework for each of the people who contribute a tool so that they can easily write documentation that follows consistent style guidelines that other people are going to follow so that when you read one documentation then you read another, they're as similar as they possibly could be. So some of that documentation can even be generated because if it's, if it's code in the platform with standard inputs and outputs, you can generate it. And those standard inputs and outputs should be common between different tools in a platform. So like, let me give you an example. The robotics framework, ROS, has a command called cmd underscore vel, command velocity. And this is the standard uh, used for directing robots for motion. It involves two scalar values. One is for how fast am I going forwards, positive or negative, and how fast am I rotating on an angle, like left or right. And that's like the simple planar 2D kind of motion command you can get into more dimensions. But because all the tools that require or produce motion commands speak this same common message format, it, it's 
much easier to understand new tools and to integrate new tools. So the, I said there was four things, and we talked, and I mentioned installation and documentation, but also usage. So the way you run and monitor and integrate the different pieces in a framework needs to be consistent. And lastly, being able to contribute to the platform. So the contribution needs to be easy to uh, develop and easy to share your, your pieces. So that's, I think, what we need to strive for on all aspects of our software. Because when I'm like writing code, I only ever want to be writing it once. And I hate to think that someone in another company at another country is writing the same exact code. So I strive in all my work to like be open sourcing it and to importantly be putting it into a place that's easy for other people to pick up, i.e. an open source platform. Right. So that what you're doing can be useful to the other person and maybe it's useful to 95% or 90% of their problem. And that extra five or 10%, that's something that they can contribute to. And then suddenly this tool that you've created gets even better. And it's only possible when we standardize on those things that you're talking about. It's something that in the consumer world, it's so common. You always have companies competing against each other and doing the exact same work as each other. That's something we've been doing in human history for I don't even know how long. But it's something that in the software world, we don't want that. I, I don't want to be building the same tool that somebody else is building. I want to be taking their tool, making it better, and putting it to use in a better way than they are. Yeah. And that's my competitive advantage. Yeah, like that's such an interesting uh, differentiation between in the physical world, you want competition and you need, you need multiple players. Uh, building things but in the digital world it doesn't make as much sense but why is that it's i don't know there's something about this space like there was nothing amazon was not the first online web store right but they did something unique and that's what made them popular not the fact that they created a technology that didn't yeah. exist for web store amazon amazon was not and this is a myth that's not necessarily that you have to be the first but you have to be the best yeah and the same is true for tons of companies in the space mm -hmm. like uh what is it? Alibaba didn't didn't exist when Amazon started. Wow. Right. Yeah. No. I think that's. I believe no, that's true. Definitely. Yeah. Alibaba and Amazon are are kind of both uh, what are called network orchestration companies, and it's this interesting class of companies that includes also Uber and Facebook. So it's it's called a network orchestration company, where the company is orchestrating a bunch of members of a network whether it's a ride-sharing network, whether it's a buying and selling marketplace like eBay, or whether it's a robotics framework, um, it's network orchestration. And companies in this market, or t these types of companies, are particularly pr profitable because they're in a position that gives them quite a lot of leverage. And I think internet companies are, are often a winner-take-all company, as much as monopolies are a bad thing. It can also be a, a have higher efficiency, and coming back to this digital versus physical, like divide dichotomy of whether it's good to collaborate or compete, it's a very very interesting question. So what's the what's the answer? Where's that line drawn? So I have a theory on that, and it's that because there is no more scarcity involved in digital software, that it just doesn't make sense to compete anymore. If it's way more productive to contribute to a common best version of a software, you know, you can branch off, but for the most part, have a common best version of software. 
then do that. But in the physical world, you have limitations that don't allow you to do that. You actually need to like make something and you need to bring it somewhere and someone and you have a very limited number of these things. Um, and so there's there is the need for competition um, because you can't just fork a factory and try something new. Like, That's right. And it, it all comes in the physical world. You've got this material cost mm-hmm. where if I want to make a calculator, I have to physically have metal and plastic and circuits yeah. and solder and components. Yeah. Um, so the design of the thing is important. But also, if I can make it cheaper than my competitor, even if our designs are the same, mm-hmm. that's valuable in the real world. But in the internet world, there isn't a materials cost. Yeah. So source code is your blueprint. So and you can, with the source code, you can make infinite number of copies of a thing. So I can take your factory with your source code and I can have it exactly the same and I can then like adapt it and even I can immediately give it back to you with zero cost on all sides except mm. for the time. But in a factory, you, you, if I wanted to like clone your factory, it's, it's like how the layout of the factory is. What's the inputs? What's the supply chain? What's, I can't copy most of those things like there is one mine somewhere on the world that you're sourcing your pro- your raw material from and i can't make a copy that easily so like competition in this sense makes more it works out better yeah i, th- I think about that stuff a lot i think it's fascinating it's very fascinating let's go on to the next thing um so we talked a little bit about robotics you've also done some work uh, at sick kids uh, doing image analysis Oh yeah, that's where. I, yeah, so I work at Sick Kids, and I do a variety of image processing tasks. I help scientists analyze their images at the Research Institute um, in Toronto, and it's a kind of a interesting and fun project because I'm using a lot of computer vision. And what's wonderful about that is every step of your code in computer vision, you can actually see. It's a oh. visual step. So I'm, I'm using classic computer vision, so not machine learning. Um, so that means I'm typically working with uh, thresholding, blurring, uh, watershed segmentation, and different morphological operations. And so I usually start with an input of images that look like cells on a microscope, usually like white blobs on a black background. And you can, you can figure out where things are by going through these computer vision steps that are really standard, really easy, really fun to work with what kind of images are you when you say you help to process images like for what so an interesting finding that we made was looking at the size of cells in the pancreas across a bunch of different animals like mice and humans and giraffes and felines like cats and shrews and um, i think we're getting a blue whale So one of the things we did once we measured the size of the pancreatic cells is that there's this correlation that the smaller your cells are, the longer you live. And this was was actually a really strong trend. And even when you control for other variables like metabolic rate, like body weight, that still the cell size to lifespan correlation is actually still the strongest. And so it's really interesting and we don't know why that is it's it's pretty strong in the pancreas that we've seen it it's somewhat strong correlation found in the liver um, but in the kidneys it's not 
it's not at all a trend. Yeah, so the group that's working under uh, Rand Caffrey, who's a scientist there, um, is trying to answer that question, like, why is this the case? Biology is so fascinating. It's, it's an incredibly deep world of knowledge. Like, if you think about time spent into science, probably the most time spent has been in the life sciences, because nothing's more important than life, and so a lot of people spent a lot of time on it. It's also an incredibly well-funded industry. There's public funding. There's huge foundations. There's private funders. There's private investment. So it's this really big, deep body of knowledge, and it's incredibly fascinating. Like I had been uh, doing when doing my computer vision work, I often see images um, of blood vessels in eyes because it's a very classic problem. And the thing that you see about it is like you see a bunch of blood vessels like they're like this basically looks like a branching network of a tree. And it always has this very exact like same kind of pattern in, in everyone's eyes. So all the blood vessels come through the optic nerve, um, which is a hole in your in the back of your eye. And this hole is actually where you have a blind spot because there's no light sensing cells there. The other thing cool about the eye is that you can kind of hack the way it detects what it's seeing, which is basically change detection. Your eyes notice change. And so what you can do is if you kind of make a little, if you pinch a little hole in your hand and you hold it up to your eye and you, sh you shake the little pinhole that you're holding in front of your eye using your hand, if you shake it in the right way, it will... Um, cause cause you to be able to see the blood vessels in the back of your eye which is huh. really weird because the thing is the blood vessels are actually and this is a strange thing i'm not sure there's a known reason for it but the blood vessels are on top of the photo photon sensing cells it's like it's like they evolution built the eye like backwards huh. maybe it's for protection maybe I mean, evolution Maybe. is evolution. It, yeah. it doesn't have a plan. Yeah. It just kind of does. That's right. So you're saying there's these blood vessels on top of the part where your eyes actually catch photons and mm -hmm. react to the, the photons. And it's because of those that you have blind... Well, because of the optic nerve kind of comes, comes away in a certain way, it is literally in the way of your vision. Mm -hmm. And you don't notice it, but it's always in the way of your vision. You're always seeing through those blood vessels, and you can reveal them by shaking a pinhole light in front of your eye, which will just kind of illuminate the edges of those blood vessels. It's really weird. Wow. Does it work if There's, you have a piece of paper and you poke a hole in it? Is that? Um, I used my hand, but so you if you want to learn more about it. Curl up your index finger. Exactly. So really tight, so it only has a little space. Yeah. But... Look up the YouTube video that explains it. Just Google it. Like, yeah. I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. That's fascinating. I didn't know your, your work on imaging would take you to learning about the optic stem. Was that just like, I don't know if, if this happens to you, but uh, many nights I'll just read a wiki page on something I think is fascinating. I'm like, oh, what's that? And I click to the next one. And last night I checked my browser history and I had 34 Wikipedia pages before I went to bed. <laughs> <laughs> no, Yeah. I think I got my start staying up really late on the internet by going through Wikipedia like rabbit holes. 
And I still do that. I, I haven't stopped. And it's a wonderful thing. I want to learn more about what's called micropropagation. So it's the one technique for growing plants from tissue culture. And a tissue culture is like very small pieces of the tissue of the plant or animal. Hmm. And they keep them in a dish, like a petri dish with a growing medium. And so with micropropagation, you can somehow, and this is why I need to read more about it, you can, you can get these plants and you don't need a seed to grow the plant. If you have a little piece of tissue and you have the right environment, it'll grow. And so you can make, you can make plants, whole plants, out of tiny amounts of cells. Right. So just like a shred of a leaf. Yeah. Something like that. Because my, uh, my ambition right now, once I have the time, is to grow a, an exotic genetically modified plant. I'm fascinated. I want to have a, collect, a collection of just interesting and strange genetically modified plants. Like for one of them, there's some common ones like uh, blue rose is genetically modified and mm. um, you can get a glow in the dark um, flower, but apparently it doesn't live as well. It's not as healthy because of the genetic damage that you've done or the extra work that is required, actually. Not, right. not the genetic, the extra work that the cell has to, the cells are undergoing to keep up the glowing. Right, so they'll, they'll need different nutrition, like yeah. more nutrients or something. Exactly. Mm, interesting. We we've gotten as a species, as a species, we've gotten very good at at figuring out um, genetic engineering over the last ten years. Like I don't know how far we've come, but this is something that I know you're fascinated about. You've read a lot about. So I was in a presentation at work at SickKids, and it was actually really hard to listen to because it was the kind of rundown of one of the patients in the hospital and this patient had um, eds it's a rare disease it stands for ehlers danlos syndrome and it's a group of disorders caused by a genetic defect in collagen and so collagen is actually what gives your cells or your body strength and flexibility so it's a building material and the strength that the collagen cells get is from this sort of geometric chemical structure that has three layers. But if you have a genetic mutation that is pathogenic, you'll end up with only one or two of this three-layer structure that is actually intact and working. And that causes a, a suboptimal performance of your collagen. And in patients, this can be a very, very chronic and unfortunate disease because um, they're very often born with uh, their hips dislocated. It's actually not that uncommon, but like often babies are born with their hips dislocated and they're just kind of, they put it, they get put into a kind of a strap harness and that'll put the legs back in the sockets. But with babies with EDS, they just don't go back in. Um, the other thing that is pretty common to have if you have EDS is very stretchy skin, hyperelastic skin, oh. um, hyperflexible joints. And so we know genetically about 10 different varieties of EDS, um, different ways to detriment the quality of your collagen genetically. And so this patient, we could identify exactly which extremely rare, never before seen at the hospital for sick children, um, genetic mutation. We identified exactly 
this position, in this um, exome, in this chromosome, in this gene, this like T has been changed to an A, but we don't we don't know how to fix it yet. Like even with all of our latest genetic engineering technology, um, this one's a tough one to fix, and it can be caused even when it's outside of a, of an exome. So a gene is formed with different like important components. Those important components that code for proteins are called exomes, and then there's these inter interexome zones called the introns that um, we don't entirely understand. We also are starting to learn that they're important to regulate the transcription or the creation of proteins of the exomes. So they're like regulatory regions. And I, I can't recall, but EDS, I think, can take place as a genetic pathogenic mutation in either the exome or the intron. And uh, so the, re the person who gave the presentation actually had one idea for how to like, genetically fix the problem, but it was a bit doubtful as to whether that would work. So it's quite sad. So we, we do have an approach to solve that. Once we've tracked the problem down to something like that, a very specific thing, we do have tools at our disposal that potentially could work, but we don't have confidence, or what's the issue? I think CRISPR was mentioned. And CRISPR is uh, like very popular gene editing technology. So as we learn to to get more masterful with our with writing DNA, like we write code, hopefully we'll see a lot of progress. First of all, just knowing what the problem is is a huge step forward. Mm -hmm. But making uh, a a positive effect in the patient's life is what we need to make next. Wow! Holy crap! Let's talk about something that we can like discuss. I think that would be fun. Let's talk about basic income, Dan. Okay. Tell me what basic income is in a few sentences. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated by this basic income idea. And how it goes is we're going to kind of beef up welfare. We're going to take out some social programs, not all of them. We still need education. EI still serves a purpose for supporting people when they're in between jobs. But as a f master fallback, we should have this good like financial footing that everyone can depend on. Um, welfare is contingent that you're looking for a job, but what if you're a mother dealing with like caring for children or uh, a son or daughter and you're dealing with an aging parent? Um, or what if like honestly in a big way society is is so hyper competitive these days? And the nature of work has, has changed so much that it can be very hard to even find a fair job, even when you're working as hard as possible. And I think in our world of massive, massive in wealth inequality, there's no reason we can't like do better, or do a better job to, to really give people financial security. Because a lot of what poverty um, is caused by is poverty itself it's like a self-reinforcing loop it's like you're in a tough situation and you don't have the money to to improve your situation right sometimes it's as simple as i want to get a construct construction job but i can't afford the boots that yeah. i would need to get a construction job yeah and you're in that loop yeah yeah and i really believe people on on average are really good people like when you ask people what they want to do with their lives in the core most people will say impact they want to have a 
good positive impact on the world. And I think we should give more people the chance. Basic income is like seed funding for the masses. Hmm. It's like, let's give everyone a shot at doing what they want to do and and to be great at it because we can give them the runway. Like it's not going to be a lot of money. You have to find a, a perfect, you have to draw the perfect balance, which is very hard between giving people so much money that they are comfortable and just will will do nothing between giving people enough money that they can get by that they can keep their hopes and dreams alive and use that time to to build up their own income right just, in the simple example of starting a company or launching a restaurant or mm-hmm. anything like that where you know now is not the time for me to start a business because i'm barely getting by yeah you know, but yeah. It, but if i knew that if it all fell apart, I would still have, I would still be able to feed myself and to have a place to live. Yeah. Then I could throw all of my weight behind my business. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Like what would you do on a basic income? Uh, Don't know too early to say. I've got a huge list of things that I want to do. Oh yeah. That like I don't have time to throw behind. Okay. I've got this thing called the unemployment to do list. <laughs> Um, if I find myself unemployed, here's all of the things I would like to build and I can like put I've, all my time and energy. In I've it. got one of those lists too. It's called the freedom list. Yes. And so when, when I don't have a job and I'm free, so-called free, or maybe I'm now prisoner of my own list. <laughs> so maybe your unemployment list is a better name. Yeah. <laughs> what's, on, what's on your list? Uh, let's see. I've got a, couple, a bunch of small things. One of them... <laughs> Some of these are silly. Some of these I, I don't want to talk about because I would like to actually build them and there's a little bit of trade secrecy in them. Cool. Uh, one of them was a really simple visual demo where people could write lines of code that did something trivial, like a code.org learning style thing. And as each line was executing, you would see the action taking place and it would highlight the line of code and like highlight the portion of the logic that it was going through. And this would be targeted at like kids and, te- and teens where it does something really easy like moving a character through a small world hmm. or mapping keyboard inputs to to audio tones, mm-hmm. you know? So it sounds like a, a visualization, um, a fly-through of your code as it's running. Yeah, exactly. That so, sounds really helpful for, for learners because it's hard to understand where you are in your code. Yeah, there's, I, I'm fascinated with the idea of visualizing large swaths of code. Uh, I had a really good analogy, which was, we've got this team of builders that are building a bridge across a river. Hmm. And he let me take you and walk you through the teams uh, and walk you through the schematics. And, you know, one person was working on wooden pathways along the shoulders of the road of the bridge. Hmm. And the new guy was like, why are there wooden pathways on a bridge? That makes no sense. Hmm. And, you know, it was like, well, you know, this old guy, this guy we've had on the team for a long time made a good case for it. So they're in. And then you take a look at the two principal builders and one of them does everything. They're both strongly opinionated. One of them does everything in metric. One of them does everything in imperial. And so half of all the schematics are in imperial and half of all the schematics are in metric. And all the, those are the designers. And all the builders just kind of hack and slash their way into building this bridge because all of their materials might not be in the same uh, measurements as the schematic drawings. Now, if this bridge was actually built, everyone involved would be like sent on a sent to the sun. Yeah, but it sounds like a lot of software, I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I 
I'm not knocking any of the stuff I've worked on, but it's what I'm getting at is the problem where it's very difficult for non-bridge building people to look at a bridge mm. and see if it was built well or not. Mm. And by a bridge, I mean software. Mm-hmm. Like I, I like software that has a flat, flat, more flat architecture. It's not like super long chains of computation pipelining, but more flat. And if you can visualize it, you would be able to quickly see, okay, this area does that, this area does that. That would sound. That sounds really useful. Yeah. So I have no idea how to build that at all yet. Well, hopefully but... you you un, you're unemployed sometime, and you'll figure <laughs> it out. Thanks, Dan. <laughs> I really that really means something. Um, I've got a couple other things. I've got a laundry list of blog posts I would like to do for one day when I start a blog. Yeah. Um, for me, it's get genetically modified plants. Um, look up what is an LSTM. I still don't understand that machine learning concept. Um, add ROS support to a software framework called SenseAct for reinforcement learning. Yeah, cool. Mm. Lots of good stuff to do. It's just not enough time. Would you want to build any more robots? What would you want to build? If I built my next robot, the last one, it was mostly like the hard part was as a rover is driving around. But driving is just one application. I think every other ap- application you could physically want to do could be done with general purpose robot arms and so i'm super definitely going to do my next project with a manipulator at the end of a robot arm Mm -hmm. Um, probably my favorite idea is plant cultivation because it's kind of easy Um, would you get a robot like a robot arm to dig a little bit and plant a bulb and cover it or would you oh so how would you tie those together so the the cool application that i see is growing plants taking care of plants from planting the seed to adding the dirt and like i'm visualizing a robot arm in the center of a geodesic dome and the geodesic dome has hanging plants on all the walls and the the robot arm just twists around in any direction and like places the seed or places the dirt ah. and then when the plant is growing it like clips the parts that need to be clipped or sprays the mold or sprays the pests or uh, harvests the fruit and i would just love to automate food production because it's one of our core needs that's right and if we can if we can automate that think of all of the you know human power that would be freed up we could think about how to do it better if we weren't busy doing it. Mm-hmm. And also try by by doing that in a more high efficiency manner of agriculture, you could free up a lot of the land that we've locked down for agriculture, which is most arable land on the planet of Earth. That's right. And I think it's I think it's very cool this parallel between virtual machines and greenhouses, which is kind of like a virtual weather environment for the plants. And it's like you can grow um, grow things in this completely abstracted world, which is whatever is perfect for that plant. I just love that idea. So that's the freedom list. Lots of fun for the future. Where did we go? Where, how did we get to this? I don't know. We started about growing growing a plant from one like shred of fiber. Yeah. So we haven't talked about machine learning yet. Mm-hmm. 
Is there, what would you like to talk about on that subject? Like, what's your exposure to machine learning? So I just got the opportunity to speak at Toronto's Machine Learning Summit, which is uh, probably the largest machine learning event in Toronto, in Canada annually. So I got the opportunity to speak at Toronto Machine Learning Summit about reinforcement learning for robotics because I've been bugging this really cool company in Toronto called Kindred AI. And they make artificial intelligence for robots that operate in the real world. And so they built this software framework that has built-in support for three different robots. A universal robotics arm, it looks like an industrial arm. A Create 2, which is basically a Roomba, but it's the developer edition, so it doesn't have a vacuum. And then also for a servo, a Dynamixel servo motor which is a motor that also has positional control. Because position is very important for robotics. You need to know uh, where in space you are. And this framework connects the hardware to reinforcement learning algorithms from OpenAI Gym, algorithms like TPRO and PPO, which OpenAI made. What are those things? So I don't actually know that much about the, the in-depth like reinforcement learning algorithms. I know that these algorithms is where is where we are linking billions of artificial neurons together to to perform tasks and to learn to do them better um, but i can't i can't discuss them in in great depth i can discuss the framework which is very cool the senseact framework which um has some it's an open source framework that has ex, um examples of how to run these sorts of algorithms on actual hardware and the thing about running on hardware that makes it more challenging is that the physical world has a slow data connect, data collection rate. If you're simulating, you can vamp up the speed of time. You can do many, many um, iterations in parallel. But in the physical world, that robot arm needs to move from here to there, and it takes a while. Uh, another reason why it's hard in the real world is that you're your sensors have noisy observations or partial observations. Also, timing is a challenge. In simulation, you can pause time at will so you can do your computation. In the real world, your robot has been moving while you're doing that computation. and So basically, you're, you're observing kind of stale state of the world and you're acting as a, relayed, as a delayed reaction to the world. Mm-hmm. And then physical robots are also dangerous. They could take your legs out or, or even they could break your bank because they're so expensive. <laughs> they could absolutely break my bank. I don't even, that, that dog by Boston Dynamics that has go, is going for sale, <laughs> I didn't even, I was too scared to look at the price tag on that thing. Oh yeah, but I want one. That's for sure. I wanted to bring me beer. That was like the first demo. Man, that there was a robot that I, had the idea of building as <laughs> just before I moved out of uh, where you live now. Yeah. And it was for the purpose of, it was essentially oh, a coffee table with light, with wheels or like an end table with wheels that would have the ability to go and open the fridge and put something onto itself mm. on the table yeah. and then drive and stop in front of me. I swear the, <laughs> the day that we get a robot like that, for the next month, we're going to be drinking so much beer because yeah. we're always going to be asking. Oh. This has been, I don't know what it is about the concept of beer delivered to the couch that has inspired so many different mechanical systems, so many different robots. 
And like there was one that I saw where someone um, outfitted a fridge and it was like a catapult and would fire it across the room into somebody's hand on the couch. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Took him a while to calibrate it so it didn't like go through the wall or. <laughs> yeah. The That's cool, what drives me to solve this problem. The cool thing about reinforcement learning is that it can actually deal with uh, uncalibrated robots because it because of the way it, it learns, it'll just deal with whatever you throw with it. If the if if you've trained it in environments that have, like if it's a driving robot, environments where the the floor is a different color or texture, or the the wheels are, are more or less calibrated, um, it can in, incorporate those different things. It's so fun having robots teach themselves. Uh, reinforcement learning for robotics is useful in a similar way that machine learning for computer vision is useful. So, for example, would you rather handcraft features that are able to detect a cat or a dog or a fire truck? Or would you just rather... Because that's a very complicated thing, and a human might not even be able to do that given that task. But you could have machine learning teach itself a representation of what those things look like. And so similarly is true, it is true for reinforcement learning, that uh, would you rather manually hard, hard code and hard implement like inverse kinematics for motion planning and the application of continuous control algorithms for every particular manipulation task or motion task, or just throw reinforcement learning at the problem and have it learn on its own. Like for example, uh, one of the tasks that is built into SenseAct is uh, having the, the Roomba robot find and dock itself to the charger. And there's a lot of things that um, it has to do to complete that goal. And there's a few ways we set it up to encourage it to do that. So, first of all, reinforcement learning is um, canonically drawn as like a cyclical flowchart that has an agent acting on an environment and the environment then presents the agent um, the result of its action, namely the state, what's going on, and the reward, how good is that thing that's going on. And so if you craft the rewards um, well enough, you can coax these robots and, and agents to learn quite a lot. So in the docking example, the reward function it was a combination of four things. Uh, firstly, a large positive number for successful docking, and then a penalty for bumping into stuff, and another small reward if it's just moving forward, and another small reward if it's facing the charger. And with mm. just those four things, um, it's able to kind of explore the, the universe of possibilities of moving the left wheel and the right wheel at plus or minus 15 centimeters per, per second. And and do you let this run in the physical world and until it, run, it figures it out? Yeah, it runs. And after like four or five hours of trying to dock, and whether if it so if it fails to dock, the standard Roomba scripted autopilot takes over, and it'll it'll f like navigate for a while to find the actual charging dock. And this usually operates in this like small box or arena, so it does find it. But if it does, either way, once it reaches the dock, it has to reset um, so that it can try again to find the dock. And the reset goes like it just backs up and like backs up at a slight angle that's random to try and randomize the, the start state. Right. 
And so the input to the reinforcement learning algorithm is an observation vector of all the sensors on the robot. Um, there's a few sensors that detect um, the dock, dock's infra infrared lights. There's like bump sensors. There's the um, speed at which the wheels are moving. So those are the inputs to the reinforcement learning algorithm. And the algorithm is able, the, the agent is able to learn to teach the robot to drive, to teach the robot to dock, and to stop at the dock when it's charging. It's pretty amazing. Right. Which I hadn't even thought about that last part. Stop spinning the wheels once you're on the charger. Yeah. And like none of these things had to be coded. We just set up the algorithm and then it learned all that stuff. It's really amazing because like manufacturers spend a significant amount of effort like making this docking scripted agent. Um, but our agent actually works pretty well. Like if it's not in its arena, it might get lost and go the wrong way for quite a while. But if it's like in an enclosed room, it's pretty consistent. It actually goes faster. The scripted agent has this slowdown procedure as it gets closer. But the the reinforcement learning algorithm never learned that. It just goes <laughs> full speed towards the dock. And stops. <laughs> and then stops. And then if it misses, it backs up and, and tries again and fidgets around and then it gets there. Wow. And the advantage of your approach is that if they make a model that's slightly bigger or moves slightly faster or the dock is slightly different, uh, you can, in theory, just throw a bunch of hours at this thing, mm -hmm. let it learn, and it might not even need that. Because it has the element of experimentation, which a scripted code wouldn't. Exactly. The script would just run, and if it fails, then it failed. It can't change. Another, another example of that is like if you, if you kick the Boston Dynamics cheetah, uh, it just reacts to that. Like, or if you push a robot arm, if it's running a real-time continuous control, it'll just be like, okay, there's some, some extra force. I'm just going to handle that and continue trying the best I can. But these universal robotics arms, they're called collaborative robots, which is kind of a new hot buzzword in robotics. It means that they're made in a way that's safe to operate right around humans, and they're not going to swing around and d destroy you by accident right we know it's not going to put full power into a, a rotation and yeah take like us out. i actually i wanted to try this so i while it was operating i was like i'm going to put my arm i'm going to sacrifice my arm put it right in front of where the robot's trying to go and it hit me it didn't hurt enough to bruise me but it, it, it felt the resistance enough and then it stopped hmm. that's what's cool is that something that we've taught these things, or is that a manual scripted? That's built into the firmware. Oh, good, good. So it's even a lower, it's a lower, lower level. So even if the algorithms uh, for controlling the robot arms movement are, you know, evil and it does want to intentionally damage something, mm -hmm. the firmware on the controllers will stop, yeah. stop the motors. Yeah, and the the firmware on robotic arms. That makes me feel arms. a lot better. Firmware on robotic arms typically run a real-time operating system. So are you familiar with real-time operating systems? Like, not overly. So the concept of real-time is not that, it's not that something will happen instantly. It's that it must happen within particular time constraints or deadlines. So, so you can guarantee that if I ask this of you, it will be done within a certain amount of time. Yeah. And that way you don't have like kernel or like CPU interrupts or a different application that's going to swamp your CPU and just like um, denial of service, your your safety critical code. 
So that's why cars and airplanes and elevators run real-time operating systems. Right. And the thing about controlling a, a real-time uh, robot arm with reinforcement learning is that your agent needs to send the commands at an appropriate timing to meet these deadlines. Because um, in the case of a universal robotics arm, um, the older ones that we were using operate at 125 hertz. So that means every 8 milliseconds, you send a command, and if uh, it doesn't hear anything, it's going to stop its motors. Because uh, it's not going to just keep moving based on the last command forever, because it'll just spin wildly. So the way you, you set up your communication software, and it's been pretty well designed in SenseAct um, to, to guarantee this sort of timing um, by using multiprocessing to divide up the sender to the hardware and the receiver processes as different so that they can multitask as well as putting the agent in its own process um, so it can do its like decision-making and learning um, the learning updates happen in between hardware mode, mo like in between what are called episodes, which is a single unit of learning. So an episode, if I've got you correctly, is send all the commands that are sent out to all the drive motors in a moment. So reinforcement learning uh, learns over a series of episodes, which is repeating the same task and hoping to get a better uh, result towards your objective. Right, by, by changing something that it's doing. Yeah, by random exploration. And then episodes are actually subdivided into time steps. And at each time step, the agent is able to make a, like send a command to motors and the agent's able to change its decision on what it wants to do in those time steps. And um, yeah. This is, this is a whole world that I don't know that much about. Like a little bit of this going over my head. It's actually not that hard. Like SenseAct makes it really easy to get into. I was amazed that I could, in a matter of hours, like install the software and have it learn, have a robot learning to do tasks on its own on my own laptop. Like that's what's amazing. And if you wanted to adapt it to a new robot, you basically have to implement five functions. You have to write your hardware like reading of of from your sensor. Um, you have to write the the writing to your hardware. As another function, you have to write um, your reset function. So what happens um, at the end of like a episode? Like how am I going to reset the state? Am I going to bring the arm back to an initial position? Um, and you have to implement the com compute sensation function, which basically is like, what were my observations? Um, convert that into a reward and send both of that to the learning agent. And the last function you have to, you'd have to implement is the compute actuation, which takes what the agent wants to do and converts it to a like hardware-ready um, series of instructions instructions for the communicator to send out to actual hardware. Mm. So I encourage everyone to check, take a look at SenseAct. You can find it at github.com slash kindredresearch slash SenseAct. And what was the example that you used it for? You said you had it running on your laptop really quickly and you were able to use it meaningfully really fast. So I've used my laptop to control the robot arm, the Roomba, and the servo. And different things you could do, like you could build on top of that, that Kindred AI is doing now. Um, because this is actually a prototype tool that is newer than any of their products. 
and so it's in the pipeline and going to be put into products soon. Um, something they're trying to do is combine two Dynamixel servos and have them like a two, have them act together as a two-axis servo that can point and aim a camera and track objects. So like they do a lot of barcode scanning of of items in a like a warehouse that needs sorting. And so I could totally see them needing to like point the camera towards wherever the arm happened to pick up an object and just barcode read it in place rather than bringing the barcode towards where this where, where the, the scanner is scanner is fixed. Huh. So this is about you at you're talking about a world where there's a robot arm that goes around moving stuff around a factory maybe it's very small like within you know a couple meters um and to figure out what it's picked up you want to scan the barcode of it Mm -hmm. and so the barcode scanner will also be able to point at wherever the arm is rather than the arm precariously moving an object around in 3d space yeah that's nuts it almost reminds me of the you know at the toronto pearson airport they've got when you put your luggage down they've got these barcode no matter where the barcode is on your luggage the scanner can find it. Wow, cool. And they've got, I kind of peered underneath the hood. They've got, but it doesn't look very intelligent. They just scan every, everything. everything. Eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would be pretty cool if it knew, okay, this is a luggage. The handles are on one of these two sides or one of these three sides. Let me just try those. Yeah. So much of the world is like not baked in with intelligence because intelligence is so fin- is so like fickle and brittle. It's There's even a Wikipedia article called like, software brittleness and it really relates a lot to ai and that if you give a slightly different scenario it doesn't adapt as well or right transfer. it doesn't work yeah that's really hard and so this robot we've been talking about the kindred builds um their main product it's called sort and yeah it, it does what we said which is picks up objects in a bin barcode scans them and then puts them in another bin according to their destination and they are using more basic machine learning algorithms that are more um, easily understood, that have a, a probability um, amount as to what it actually believes the state of the world to be, like an association of how confident it is. It is. How, you... how confident in which bin it's supposed to go to? Um, so there's a couple steps involved. There's grasping it, what is a good position to do a grasp and what confidence you have on that and then you um they also have to like look into the bin and bins and see if it's empty or if there's stuff there they have to um, figure out where on the package the barcode is so that they can even attempt to look towards it they have to do like motion planning of the robot arms motion and the more you use pre-planned like pre-computed motion plans the more reliable and consistent and the better it works, but the slower it goes. So if you can have the robot just say, I'm going to go from here, from arbitrary point A to arbitrary point B, it might kind of um, take this crazy path. And like, I don't know too much about it, but the inverse kinematics can be can be finicky, but it's also faster um, to skip like known positions. But yeah, it's a lot to, it's, uh, there's a lot of, I, f- I feel like grasping is, and like robotic manipulation is like the hardest thing to do with computers. It's not just writing code. Writing code is simple. And it's not just seeing, 
things in the real world. That's a bit harder too. It's seeing things in the real world and being able to move to them and being able to pick them up and not drop them. Right. Understanding what they are. It's seeing and understanding what it is and understanding how I can interact with whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, Understanding the implications of dropping this item versus that item. Yeah. I can definitely imagine a world where that robot arm hasn't figured out that it just broke the China doll that it was trying to pick up, (laughs) but it's so it scanned the barcode and put whatever, you know, the foot with the barcode in the box and that was it. Yeah. So there, the sort robot is limited right now in terms of what it can pick up. It can pick up uh, mostly clothing, but if it's like a huge jacket or something, then it, it 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 tries to pick it up, and it might just it might just like limp down and not actually get picked up, or, or like loose objects that, or like shoes that it can't pick up. Um, can't pick up shoes? Why not? No, they're just not that far advanced yet. They have a they have this cool gripper that'll do like a suction, which is great for if a clothing is in a be- in a plastic bag, which they always are. So it'll suction to the bag and kind of pull it up, and then these two pincers come out and grab the bag, and it works out really well. I think that's a custom design. Yeah, so it uses uh, pressurized air to suck with the sucker. Mm-hmm. They also call it a Kirby gripper. Kirby gripper. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> That makes sense why that would not work on shoes so well. Yeah. Or at all. Yeah. They're, see, the the dream is general purpose, and they're just, they're working towards it. Not there yet. What do you think, what do you think we need to do between now and general purpose, you know, clamp manipulator of shoes and everything? Is there, like, are we close? Do you feel like there's a lot of work? Or we're we're almost there? That's a good question. I think um, a general purpose manipulator, like a hand, is the hardest part. Um, there's so much going on in our hands. There must be 10,000 ner- uh, nervous, like direct connections from your hand to your brain, sensing a haptically fe- the feedback of what you're touching. In addition to that, there's, I don't know, like 20 or 30 or more degrees of freedom in your own hand. Yeah. Even even the ones you don't think about, like you can, if something's really wide, you can stretch out your pinky and your index finger to kind of get around something really big. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just the joints that we think about, like the three joints in each finger. Mm-hmm. So having a great like manipulator, I think, is is a really tough problem that is yet to be solved. We've seen recently OpenAI and their their manipulation results, and that was incredible, really amazing. But that's they learned for one task. It hasn't generalized to any other task than rotating the block. Yeah. Well, they found that they, you could rotate other similarly small mm-hmm. different shapes. Yeah. So it didn't have to be a perfect cube. It could be a bit of a cylinder. And the the system was capable enough to do that, mm-hmm. um, which was a little almost unexpected. Yeah, it's cool. Well, because in simulation, they they were able to randomize the environment and the colors and the lighting and the and the sizes and gravity and, and friction and oh yeah uh, wow sure which are not things you can do in the real world that's what and they were able to you know run a thousand of them in parallel or a hundred thousand wow yeah which but still it's just kind of one problem hopefully the the next challenge they'll do is instead of just rotating this block they'll try and pick up arbitrary objects i feel like picking up might be the ultimate app like just being able to hold anything. The thing is, there's every individual thing is like its own app. Like you can pick up a screwdriver. I feel like once you can hold it, the rest of the act, the rest of the tasks are easy. 
if you can hold what you're trying to do. Like if you can hold a, if you can hold a, a screwdriver is a good, a good, a good example, right? Once you've got it and you can hold it in a dexterous way, you can apply a bit of force. You can screw something in. You can take out screws. Yeah. A robot could assemble another robot. That would be amazing. I would love that. <laughs> or a robot that can use a paintbrush and, and tune up the paint on your walls. Or, oh my God, that would be great. And it would be so accurate in the little corners, right? Where the wall meets the ceiling. Yeah. Or a robot that can untangle your cords or put the dishes away. like, Or make dinner. Making dinner... It's really just about holding different things, isn't it? It's like you hold a, a spatula and you, you shake things around. You hold the knife and you cut things. I feel like holding is the up ultimate app. Yeah, what a, I, I can't even imagine the day where uh, we get so good at holding things that it can like flip an omelet. Yeah. That would be so cool. And they'll flip omelets way better than us. Yeah, I can't. It'll be like, <laughs> they'll like simulate the omelet dispersion patterns like a hundred thousand times and be like, I have a 95% probability that this flip is going to be totally badass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, do you think once that happens, we will standardize on robot arms and pans? Will we standard? I don't think we'll standardize on robot arms because they're physical things that you have to buy and we'll have a limited number of them and you'll be able to buy one and I'll be able to buy a different one. But, um, standardization, hopefully will come and would enable a lot of good things like as it does in, in international trade and shipping. Hopefully standardization usually does come like it, if you look at a car, which is an incredibly complex system, there's a couple standards you'll find. You'll find the metric system. Hopefully you'll find, um, a can, yeah, a can bus communication. That's system. right. That's the standard. All of the different sensors, they talk to each other over the same standard. Um, Even non the non stuff like the mechanical stuff like the the tires are a standard size, and you've got yeah tires are standardized. All the batteries are standard voltage. Batteries are standardized. Uh, yeah, a lot of the pieces have become standard. You're right. The, Even the electric cars, the electric cars had a, a bit of a struggle getting off the ground in the very beginning because the outlets that would charge them were not standard. So you couldn't have the same way that all of our gasoline pumps wow. are all exactly the same. Wow. So the the industries all needed to agree on a standard, but we couldn't do the same thing as the gasoline car, where it took us a very long time to standardize. We had to basically standardize before consumers would buy the cars. Oh, really? Because yeah, the landscape is different, hmm. right? the 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 quality of a product that's introduced into the market today has to be very polished, mm -hmm. and that those constraints didn't really exist as much back then. That's right. Like your your car could be a lot, you know, could be a little rougher, a little more, a little less reliable, a little less well defined. The the creation of things as a society tend towards standardization because it's like an it's a low energy state. Why why are we both going to do something different that doesn't work together when yeah. when we can work together? It's just a natural progression of of working together is to standardize on things, and so we'll see it in all aspects. But that goes um, like orthogonally to kind of a trend in the world today of mass specialization, mass personalization, right? How do you mean? The, there's mass personalization, and I think that will still be a thing. The people want to make the products they buy, and the decisions that they make, they want to make them personal. Mm -hmm. And I think that doesn't necessarily go against standardization. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess I think I'm just seeing them apply to different places. 
Like I think yeah. clothes will not be standard. We will not standardize the outfit mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. Um, but for example, we've standardized the labels on the tags and the yeah. existence of the tags. Yeah, and the sizes. And the size. Yeah, that's right. So it, it comes somehow from human nature that we want these. In some cases, these specialized or customized versions of everything. What is that about human nature that brings about this? Because it's like you you want to be a unique snowflake. Yeah. You want to you want to shine differently than everyone else. Oh, I think I know what it is. Why it is? Much of how we see the world is through patterns, and the things that interest us the most are breaking patterns. Like comedy. Comedy is just basically language that is used in a surprising way, but still makes sense. It's pattern breaking. And so we visually appreciate that when we like put our clothes on and when we meet different people, we're looking for the pattern breaker. That's like interesting, more advantageous, more useful than average. Right. And I, there's psychological reasons why that might be something that's attractive for people. Like there might be a reason why we might have actually evolved to be that way with a reason because if i'm willing to explore something that's different from the pattern Mm. it might be important Mm -hmm. because this difference from the pattern might signal that you know a thousand years ago that i won't be able to grow my crop in this spot anymore because suddenly there's a pattern that's different about the way the river is or the way that you know whatever Mm -hmm. and like i think life comes with no instruction guide and and so being an experimenter and looking to, to to like accidentally break patterns and learn new things is super advantageous because you don't have the instruction guide. You have to, you have to learn what right. is that rustle in that bush. Like, is it something I can eat? I would love to eat right now. <laughs> is it something I should be weary of? Yeah. yeah, that's right. You talked about in your machine learning, uh, reinforcement learning, the procedure. One of the things was that you had a reward system or you had a penalty system, and there, that doesn't perfectly translate to the real world because you can't just like get out of high school and say here are the rules for success Mm. and here are the rules for failure. I wonder if you could set up a reinforcement learning for like for your life, for your, in the world. What's the reward? Reward is generally happiness. I think, I think that's what it comes down to. And a lot of the time money enables it because it buys you food. It buys you um, a warm house. But if you optimize for pure happiness at the end of the day, you, you won't, it doesn't last forever and it's not fulfilling at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. No happiness is going to be broken down in many different ways. It's has components, buckets that you have to fill different parts of your happiness, like web. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What would they be though? If, if mankind, if humankind had, uh, you know, these rewards or these penalty systems, it would be like every time you make a dollar, you earn a dollar, you get a half a point. And every time you, uh, go to prison, you, you lose, 10 points. But that's what money is. That money is our money universal is language. Money has this super useful part of society. As much as I wish we would all be more community builders and more a bit more communist, um, money is a super useful tool for for figuring out what the price of scarce resources should be and I don't think I don't think we should like I, I sometimes want to claim that I'm a post-capitalist. But I, I, I can't because I know reluctantly that I'm a capitalist because it's a super high efficient system. It's an emergent system. You have this like distributed n- network of people who are making individual actions and emerging from all of that is the market and the price and, and it's the low energy state of you 
you're paying as little as possible uh, for what you're wanting to get. What do you what do you mean by low energy state when you say it that in that way? So ideally, you want to do the most good with the least effort, and a low energy solution to that is it, it's hard to describe. Low energy states describe the most efficient solution to a problem. Like it's the difference between using a wheel versus using a square wheel. Ah, it's less energy I put in for the same for the output. same output. Yeah, I gotcha. So in your example, if I can spend less money to get the same outcome, mm-hmm. it's an efficiency gain. So it's a and it's, it's better. a lower energy state. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I see that. I think our our well being comes down to doing more with less, and there's a parallel argument that says that the level of economic growth in the world is kind of a indicator of how much we're doing with what we have and so the more we can do with what we have the better we're all off and the good thing about gdp is it's a very clear like metric the bad thing about gdp is it doesn't measure non-monetary things yeah it's not a perfect measurement yeah but it's probably the best one we've got to date Mm -hmm. and i think this economic system that we have called capitalism is certainly far from flawless yeah, but it's better than any of the things we've tried previously. And so I am really curious what's going to happen from that. Where are we going to go as long as we can keep history in the in our minds so we know what we've tried and what has gone well and what hasn't, which is almost like a risk reward thing where we we're like I don't want to repeat that thing in history cuz that's that would make me lose a million points. Yeah. Um, and thank God for the internet we can look back at so much and not make so many mistakes. Yeah. Yeah, that access to information is cheaper than it's ever been. That's amazing. You can download, I think you can get an entire copy of every Wikipedia article in English. Mm-hmm. And it's like very feasible. We can all just store that on it's our like phones. It's like five gigs. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. I think about that. We, we can carry around so much history, so much knowledge about how something works, what something is, how they're connected together, which is how somebody spends, you know, an hour and a half on Wikipedia <laughs> jumping around. Yeah. I think it's like 30 or 60 gigs if you're including all of the images too. Which is still, you know, very feasible. I can put that on my phone. Mm-hmm. So Which I, is insane. We've got access to this information. We've never had this kind of access before in human history. And I don't know anybody who searches through Wikipedia because they have a copy. It helps me so much to find out useful information in my life, like really meaningful information. There's this website called 80,000 Hours, and it tells kind of uh, really useful articles based in science about how using your your career and the the total number of hours in a typical life of, of a career is about 80,000 hours. And it gives wow. like really sound advice for how to choose something that will make you happy and make the world a better place. And the sort of principles like that they recommend when choosing what to do in your career is like, think about what are the biggest problems facing the world. So we've got gl- climate change. We have um, animal welfare. We have, um, we've like got deforestation, deforestation, we've got... got crazy stuff like <clears throat> cosmic rays and conspiracies. And then think about how, how much attention is already being directed towards that problem. Is it underappreciated? Maybe if it is, you should, you should act more on that. And then another aspect is how good of a personal fit is this problem for you? 
Yeah, so 80,000 Hours, is they have a podcast too. It's really great. People should check it out. It's all about how to make the right career choices and solve the world's problems. Very interesting. Thinking about like happiness is something that I like to do. I want to harp on that first for a second. And I realized there's kind of three three buckets of happiness that I need to like be putting water into at any time. And if I neglect one, like I'm not going to be happy. And so there you've got like your external um, objectives, which include um, feeling like you're making a positive impact on the world as well as so like doing things for people you don't know, as well as doing things for the sake of getting money. These are all like, I feel like external goals that you kind of have to plug away at in your life. Um, to keep you happy but then there's also like the balance with your internal needs so like just being able to find time for yourself to relax and to think about things and the thirdly is interpersonal needs so finding love and finding friends to, to interact with and like those three buckets you constantly have to work on and like like it's just interesting to know that so that's something you figured out about yourself recently that yeah. you have you, you identified that you have these three facets of your life that need maintenance yeah and like for me it, it's like how i balance my time i know externally i need to go to work and make money as well as work on my side projects like robotics internally i want to like do enough exercise and and just chill and then i also need to like see my friends from time to time and that 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 balance will keep me happy yeah yeah i got that and that actually just to share a quick story of myself, 2018 was really me figuring that out for myself. Cool. Those, that, that balance of those buckets. Yeah. And, uh, to plug one thing that I found very fascinating was Jordan B. Peterson has a, uh, a quiz online you can take called understanding myself.com. And that was one of the many, many things that I used to, to sort of learn a little bit more about myself. And it was very interesting to to see the results that I got and how they were different from how I thought I was and to consider that maybe the results are wrong or maybe, maybe I don't see myself accurately or maybe it's somewhere in between. And to sort of play in that space of considering which one is most accurate uh, for who I was at that time because at any, moving, at any moment, I'm going to be a moving target of... Who I am yeah it's so good to know like uh to know yourself and what how something that also similar that helped me quite a lot is looking at the big five personality traits so that's openness conscientiousness um, extroversion um, agreeableness and neuroticism and kind of what I did as like a tiny experiment that anyone can do is I just went on Wikipedia and read the definitions and then I ranked myself do I think I'm more above average or below average on each of these things and I also ranked my significant other. And then I realized like, like what our differences were more clearly. And it actually helped me make a big life decision going forward and it helped me out a lot. So I recommend doing that. Yeah. Did, is there any notes that we didn't cover? Um, we didn't talk about summoning the demons. <laughs> Can we? Because I love this idea yeah. that we're just moving towards building this art or this wow. artificial general artificial intelligence that is it can make general purpose decisions and can improve itself and there are many groups of individuals moving towards this goal at a very quick pace 
mm-hmm. with the understanding that it's inevitable, so we should do it. Yeah. One of the many interpretations. Yeah. Like, what we know as a fact is that progress will continue unless the planet gets hurt by hit by a meteor. Progress will continue, and at some some point, we will so-called unlock the demons um, by creating an artificial intelligence. We will be summoning the demons, and I think it gets scary if you think about um, even not even a non-artificial, non-general artificial AI, like a weak AI. A researcher who's doing at, who's working at the intersection of machine learning and computer security, and they gave the reward to the to the agent as the number of computers that you're able to compromise and hack mm-hmm. is the reward. And so if that become if it learns somehow to be successful and to continually learn, it would, and it, it, if it gets out of its sandbox, it'll just grow and grow and grow. And, and you'll have to just, uh, I guess you'll have to put like antivirus software on everything, but. Well, here's, this is one thing that I've thought about a bit. Because software will always have vulnerabilities. It's so rare that there's actually something that always. is completely invulnerable. There's every, always another layer. Every home, every vault also has vulnerabilities. It's, every single one. There's no perfection in the world. And so if a general purpose AI picked up a weak AI system that knew how to compromise and get itself in, and then it could get a foothold into any system, think about how absolutely overnight that would change our entire planet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's... That's. I think I like playing with that that doomsday um, idea in my head because it's a fun thought experiment. But it's actually very feasible that a computer system that's good at breaking into computer systems can just infect astronomical amounts of devices on the internet, and then and if it's, it's able to improve itself, look at it. Has it's, it? Ha- it's happened. We've have we have. Uh... But we've done that with specific purpose with like one vulner- one worm that was able to compromise. A million vulnerable systems but we've never had what was that called again there's been so many give me any name uh, none none pops to mind yeah me too. there's the concept of like a worm or a virus is that it finds a hole like a very specific hole uh, a simple example could be like if every windows 98 machine has a vulnerability where if it shares a printer we can go in through the port where it shares the printer and run a small bit of arbitrary code on the host machine. If we can do that, then we can get that host machine to download a payload and execute it and then get a total foothold on the machine. It's always something very specific that happens to affect a lot of copies of the same thing. Mm-hmm. So that would never affect a Mac machine. It would never affect a Windows XP machine or whatever it is. Um, if we had a general purpose AI and Sorry, if we had a weak AI that was good at exploiting systems, right. um, we do have systems that to some degree can automate the buffer overflow attack, right? Which Whoa. is, you know, the the core building block of remote vulnerabilities or vulnerabilities in general. Uh, it's not every vulnerability is a buffer overflow, but it's a lot of them. Wow. So think about that. If we had a weak AI system that knew how to take advantage of different kinds of little doors... Mm-hmm. Right, they were accidentally left on these systems, then that would be terrifying, because I can guarantee that just about every single device on the internet has a little door somewhere. I know. disagree. I think there are some systems that are secure, um, not perfectly secure, maybe not to a super intelligent 
AI hacker that could try every possible combination. But I think some systems are truly secure. I think it's possible to build secure systems. I think it's possible. It's just unbelievably difficult. Yeah, and it's very rare. But I think you find it more often in open source um, products that are designed for security that have a very slow like software change rate that only undergo change that is highly analyzed. Mm-hmm. Do you, is, there, is there an example that comes to oh I'm, well I'll say mine. Uh, the example that comes to mind for me is FreeBSD or BSD. Yeah. Which yeah. Um, Fedora is supposed to be very secure as well. Or sorry, uh, Red Hat. Red Hat, yeah. Which Fedora is based on? Yeah, like just when I thought OpenSSH and OpenSSL was secure, there was a massive hack recently about that. Was there another one recently? Or are you talking about no, the, the heart, old Heartbleed? Heartbleed. Heartbleed. A while, a while ago. That was a great one. And it was such a... I saw the patch for that. Oh. It was like a six-line patch, you know? The fix? The fix, yeah. Wow. So Heartbleed was this massive vulnerability in SSL that affected, I don't even know how many gajillions of computers. Yeah. And it was such a small mistake that if I was looking at that code, I probably wouldn't have noticed yeah. And the fix for it was only six, you know, very wow. few l- number of lines of code that changed. It's crazy. I go to Wikipedia. Do you edit Wikipedia, Dan? I've made like two small useful changes. Yeah. I don't remember what. Wikipedia is amazing. Wikipedia is amazing. Again, standardization, mm-hmm. openness. It's like post cap. It's an abundant post capitalist idea. I love it. Yeah. That collectively everyone together, they can do this better yeah. than. And I believe we can do that in in physical ways too. I believe it's so much harder in, in the like. I would love to see a basic income that provides peace, people abundance of financial securities, so they don't have to stress. Yeah, and and eliminating that stress and giving people the platform to be able to go off and chase their dreams is a really good goal. But that that balance is, um, what if that isn't what happens? If mm-hmm. the observed result is that people don't do anything mm-hmm. uh, they just find meaningless ways to occupy their mental space i feel like there are more enjoyable i don't know it maybe there are more enjoyable activities to, to be done that are designed for fun than meaningful activities that are designed to help fellow community yeah and like there's so many good games i would love to play but i need to make a living and so i go to work and generally people work to make useful things for each other. And so it all comes down to you're making the world a better place. It's somehow, even if you're just working a meaningless job, you're contributing to what someone really needs. Maybe we can find a way to gamify a lot of some people's work where it's more enjoyable to do. And therefore, if people have already solid income or a good enough income, they will still be enticed to go and deliver their, do whatever they need to do at work. Yeah, if only... Like the the trade off is then you have like a high level of surveillance and like checks and balances and and like auditing that you do on people's activities. Like if, if in a game it's built in, you have those metrics. But in someone's personal private space, it's that's not so good. It's not as good. Like I wish, I really truly wish. But that's that's part of the reason why basic income is like a no strings. We're not going to ask you if if you've even looked for work because you're you know what's best for for you and your community to just go do that. We're not going to let right. not, you don't need permission. And there, there's an argument that says even if like a large number of people don't do productive things, 
there will there will be outliers who who make great change and great positive effects on on the world and like we've seen that in most of the innovations that we've received from from people who have generally been in very privileged positions to have the time to tinker and to experiment um so if we can give more people a ridiculously large number amount of time to tinker some of those people are going to create incredible works that the rest of us are will and it will easily make up for the rest uh, of the unproductive groups of mm. society that's so interesting to me because that's literally the way that many technology companies operate where they have a hundred research projects at a time and they know that most of these research projects will not turn into anything mm-hmm. and one of them will become the next LinkedIn mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Exactly. And that's, that's how they operate. Yeah. I think it's crazy. There's like, yeah, the fact that the companies expect so much to so much failure, the, the fact that there is a statistic that says like 19 out of 20 startups will fail. I really see there being a lot of companies that don't fail that are still redundant to each other in different countries or different customer segments, but do really, really same sort of thing. And so I feel like there's going to be a great deduplication um, in terms of software as people realize what is the best and the rest hmm. is really? going to not I think the opposite is going to happen. Cool. I, oh, yeah? I really think that... Uh, diversity in our in our applications and in our approaches is going to be something that's desirable. Yeah, and that's not to say that standardization is going to go away. I think we're going to have standards. Yeah, but I think we're going to have systems that process things differently than other systems. That's going to be valuable, mm-hmm. and especially for if one of them has a mistake and they can't handle this one scenario, but the other one can, and then vice versa, the other one can't handle this one because of a mistake. So can they be forks? Can they be forked? I hope so. Like, I mean, your solution is the same original problem, but then someone has fixed it in a in a fork. Yeah, but as as features are added and whatnot, still there will always be room for error. There will always be some mm-hmm. amount of error, yeah. but they won't all have the same error at the same time. Yeah, that's the thing that I think is key. So when I say de- deduplication, I should add then that you can change the if there's this deduplication down to one one core piece of code you can you can uh adapt it and like experiment with it dan thanks so much for being on the show thank you it's been a great pleasure chatting with you man if people want to reach out to you how can they do that uh you can find me on twitter i'm just uh slash or at daniel snyder and thanks again for having me uh we had some interesting conversations about robotics and standardization and the future of of the world and it's very exciting to see see the world kind of accelerate at this current rate and um, i'm very inspired by all the smart people who are thinking amazing incredible things out there and just incredibly impressed by the, the quality of the average person in toronto and in the world so I'm, I'm i'm looking forward to the future nice yes thanks so much for being here dan awesome Thank you, Daniel, for being on the podcast. You can find more information about anything we discussed in the episode notes on our website. Visit torontotechpodcast.ca. One that was especially interesting to me was about the structure of the human eye and how it's really backwards from how I'd expect it to be. I've linked a short video about that in the episode notes. 
You can connect with us on our website or on Twitter at TO Tech Podcast. This week's closing features music from a local Toronto band. This is Back to Massachusetts by Sun K. Thank you for listening. <laughs>